pray together. Holy Spirit, we know you're here. We ask that you would come and work powerfully now, that um, we'd hear your voice, that we'd hear from you, and you'd help us especially with the difficult things going on in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after the resurrection, the apostles got bolder. Jesus had come back and they started preaching and thousands of people became Christians, became followers of Jesus. And this really bothered the very devout Pharisees, especially the younger men got really angry and they ended up actually stoning one of the first deacons, Stephen. And as they were stoning him, this guy named Saul, a young man, was kind of holding their coat so they could throw better. And uh, he was in a religious rage and this young Saul, he started rounding up Christians and imprisoning them. And some of them had fled to other cities, so he pursued them. And he's on the way pursuing them, and he's, on, he's near Damascus, and this bright light bursts on the scene, and he falls down, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, Saul is struck blind at that point, and for the next three days he's blind, and he's fasting, a complete fast of no food and no water. And the Lord speaks to Ananias, a Christian, and says, I want you to go pray for Saul so he can see again. And Ananias says, I know this guy. He puts Christians in jail. And the Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, Saul was eventually, he became a Christian. He, was, he, became, he got his sight back. He was eventually recruited by Barnabas to go and help at the church in Antioch. And they get sent out by the church to become missionaries. They start planting churches. He then goes by the name of Paul. He's the Apostle Paul. He writes much of the New Testament, plants lots of churches. And God does extraordinary miracles through Paul, healing very, very sick people, casting out demons, raising the dead. It's even one time they're in jail and, the sh- and, and God has their shackles fall off and the doors spring open. But even though God did all these amazing signs and wonders through the Apostle Paul, and he started a number of churches and wrote most of the New Testament, much, much of the New Testament, Paul suffered a lot. At one point, he summarizes it. Now, now, just try and let this click into your brain, all that he suffered. I'm going to read it through quickly. He says to the, to the church in Corinth, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I doubt if anyone in this room has been through all that. Now, why did the Apostle Paul, such a great man of God, suffer? A man whose prayers were often answered in astounding ways. A man who loved God and served Him. Why did he suffer so much? Didn't the promises of the Bible, and we're going to see a bunch of them today, didn't they apply to him? 
here. We're going to come back and answer that question at the end, all right? Would you open a Bible or your phone or something to Psalm 37? It's on page 466 in the Bibles and the Pews. And we're going to really kind of jump around today, so you'll, uh, I highly recommend that you keep that open and follow along. Okay, we're going to start at verse 1, Psalm 37. Fret not because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, throughout this psalm, two sort of topics are kind of interwoven, and we're going to kind of pick many of them out. But one is just the whole thing of worrying or fretting or being afraid about the wicked. And the other is about God's promises of provision and protection. So first we're going to look at the part about the wicked. Going back again to verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for like, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They'll fade like the grass. Now, last week in Psalm 73, Azapi was primarily envious of the prosperity of the wicked. But you're going to see in, in chapter 37, in Psalm 37, it's not primary, primarily envy, although that's mentioned. It's fear. Fear of what the wicked might do to you. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth. See, the wicked are out to get the righteous. Perhaps they look like easy pickings. Perhaps they look like they'll never fight back. Perhaps they're just, let's go get those do-gooders and teach them a lesson. 13, verse 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. So God sees that their destruction is coming. And we said that they're like grass that fades, that withers. Now, I live out partway out in the, the, in the valley, almost the mid-valley. And... Right now, our grass is green and tall. We don't really have a lawn. We have grass. And sometimes, I mow the weeds. Um, can't even mow them right now because they've been too wet. But in a few months, it'll all be brown and dead and ugly. And in the ancient world, people didn't have lawns. They didn't irrigate little nice patches of grass in their front yard. They had grass that grew up, and then it got withered, and it was brown. And King David the writer of this psalm is talking about how the wicked are like the grass. They're just going to wither. They're not going to be around that long. God laughs because he sees their end. Verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. For the arms of the wicked, and verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Now for us, this is a metaphor, but this was not a metaphor for David. He's talking about actual swords, real bows and arrows. David's lifetime and his story are filled with violence and marauding bands and being chased around and armies killing people. For example, while King Saul was still living, he was after David. So David had to live in exile, and so he became a mercenary. He and his 600 band of men became a mercenary to the Philistine king, and they lived in a little town called Ziklag. 
And as they were, when they were returning from serving the king, they got back to Ziklag, and the houses, the whole place had been burned, and all the people had been carried off, carried off, kidnapped, and all of their stuff. And David's followers were thinking of stoning him because they'd been following him, and they'd left it defenseless, and they'd gotten slaughtered. But God tells David to pursue them. They pursue after the Amalekites that had done this, and they um, end up killing them, almost all of them and recovering all of the people and all of the stuff. But David is that's the kind of world David lived in. It's not like our world. He's referring to real swords here and real enemies. But it's also a metaphor. It's also representing any time the wicked are out to get the righteous. Now, do you ever worry about something awful that someone might deliberately do to you or to someone you love. It's unlikely you're going to... I mean, imagine if, you know, going home to your neighborhood today and hundreds of houses have been burned and your family's been kidnapped and all your stuff taken. Not likely that that's going to happen. But we do worry about other things, don't we? I grew up with the threat of nuclear war. They taught us in school to duck down underneath the desks I have no idea why. My father actually built a, a bomb shelter for a nuclear bomb. What, what do people fear today? Terrorists, don't they? Don't people feel terrorists? Some fear that terrorists will smuggle in a nuclear weapon. 9-11 changed everything. Some people fear cyber bullies, people who will ridicule others mercilessly online. Some people fear their children getting kidnapped, especially young women. People trying to, people stealing our identity and our money. Predators posing as children in chat rooms. Bad influence that get our kids hooked on drugs. Greedy people that cause another economic meltdown where we lose half of our net worth. Violent or emotionally abusive parents or husbands. In this psalm, God is promising that the wicked will soon be gone and we should not worry about them. What does he mean? Are there any conditions? What exactly is God promising? Because for most of it, it seems like the wicked hang along, hang around plenty long enough to kind of cause a lot of pain, don't they? Now, before I try to answer in a way that has been really helpful to me and I hope will be helpful to you, let's look at the other part of this psalm the promise of provision and protection. And we'll go relatively quickly. Look at verse 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land. Does that remind you of anybody? And delight themselves in abundant peace. Abundant peace. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. A heritage that lasts forever, not being put to shame, making it through a famine just fine. Talking about the righteous, verse 24, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Remember last week in Psalm 73, it says, I got a, you hold my right hand. 
In Proverbs it says, the righteous man falls seven times yet rises again. God keeps the righteous from unrecoverable disaster. Verse 25, I have been young and now I am old. This is King David's writing this late in his life. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Again, the righteous don't starve. They've got money to loan out. And then verse 33, The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Remember, the ancient civilizations highly corrupt. You got enough money, you bribe the judge, he perverts justice, and the righteous guy goes down. And yet God is promising that won't happen. And then at the end, a couple of verses that summarize, verse 39, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold. In the time of trouble, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. And then going back to verse 4, my favorite. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, all over the world, there are thousands or perhaps millions of people in, in some of the largest churches in the world who take the promises of this psalm in a very straightforward way. And they are convinced that This is God promising that they will not experience pain from wicked people and they will prosper. And then they lose their job. Or their kids get in trouble. Or their marriage falls apart. Or someone they love gets cancer. And all of their prayers and all of their devotion in in some of their cases doesn't seem to be getting them a job or helping their kids or fixing their marriage or curing the cancer. And because they've been taught that these are straightforward promises, you name this and claim this and you will have this, they ask their leaders why it's not working. And almost invariably, their leaders will point to the conditions of Psalm 37. And don't try to follow, but I'll just tell you some of them. These are all through it. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. There's a condition. Delight yourself in the Lord. There's a condition. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. Turn away from evil and do good. The law of His God is in His heart. His steps do not slip. And so their leaders will point to the conditions of Psalm 37 and say something like this. Well, you must not be trusting God or you must be sinning in some way, or you must not be truly committed, or you must not be actually delighting yourself in the Lord, because we know that God has promised you provision and prosperity and protection. He's he's promised that for the righteous. So if you are not prospering, the problem must be you. This happens all over the world. And many people become deeply disappointed with God and abandon Him. Perhaps you're deeply disappointed with God today. Maybe your life isn't turning out how you plan. Maybe you love Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, and yet life just seems too hard. Too many waves of adversity just keep on hitting you. You may even be thinking it's because you're not good enough, because you have not kept the conditions like the ones in Psalm 37. It's not because you failed to fulfill the conditions set forth in Psalm 37. 
Jesus fulfilled those conditions for you. As a matter of fact, he is the only one who has ever fulfilled those conditions. He did it perfectly, and he did it for you. That's not the question. The question is, do you love him? Do you believe he's God's divine son who died for you and rose again? Have you turned your life over to him? Then the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And if you have faith the size of a teeny tiny mustard seed, that's all it takes. And God will intervene in your life and answer your prayers. See, God is, if that's you, then God is fulfilling his promises to you. It just doesn't look like you thought it would. It's actually better. See, when followers of Jesus pray, we read this year in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us because we don't really know how to pray. And God does what you would ask Him to do if you knew what He knows. If my four-year-old grandson sees me working with a chainsaw, I go, I want one of those. Can I have one of those? I want to have it and just play with it whenever I want. I'm not going to give him one. I might, you know, give him a toy one, or I might let him practice with some real pliers or something, but he's not ready for a chainsaw. Now, I want you to imagine the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they are talking about one of your prayer requests, okay? And maybe you've asked for a better job, one that you will enjoy more, with more responsibility and a higher salary, and the Holy Spirit is interceding for you, and the Son is interceding for you, And the father says, yes, we could give them a better job. But if we do, I see in the future that they will cling to the extra money too much. Kind of like what Eric was talking about. And the father continues, they will will spend too little time with their children. And they will end up loving us less. They'll still make it to heaven, but they will be much less transformed, and that will negatively impact their experience of us and of heaven for all eternity. No. Let's give them something better than their new job. In Proverbs 30, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, I'm sure the conversations about your prayers among the Trinity are much more complex than what I just tried to make up. They're much wiser. But God gives you what you would ask for if you knew what he knows. Does that mean the promises in Psalm 37 are meaningless? Far from it. So I can look back at my life Because like David, I'm getting older. And I can see all these times that I didn't understand what God was doing at the time. And then a few years later, I'd look back and, oh, that's, uh, I think I get it now. I see places where he was providing for me, places where he was protecting me, putting me in situations where I would learn to love him more, keeping me out of situations that I wanted to get into that would have probably not worked out well for me at all doing miracles, answering prayers. And sometimes, what looked like him not answering a prayer was actually him giving me something better. And at the time, I I often didn't recognize what he was doing. Later, 
there are exceptions, but later I got it. And many times, there, there are still some things in my life, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why God hasn't answered certain prayers. or that, But it really helps me that I can see a bunch of other times that were like that when now I get it. See, God doesn't want you to just trust Him because you can understand Him. He wants you to trust Him when you can't understand Him because you know He's good and that He knows so much more than you do. And if there weren't those situations where we didn't get it, if we always understood what He was up to, we wouldn't have to trust Him all the time. One day you will understand, 1 Corinthians 13 says, promises, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So King David writes Psalm 37 when he's old. And he's had a very complicated and difficult life. He was exiled. He was being chased after by a king who wanted to kill him for years. And then once he's king and he messes up with Bathsheba that we talked about several weeks ago, his favorite son, Absalom, betrays him. And he, and he, he stands in the gate where all the wise men talk and he listens to complaints about his father and he says, yeah, if I were king, I'd do that differently. And he creates a rebellion and a civil war where thousands die, including Absalom, David's favorite son. But as he writes about God's protection, instead of referring to those things, David refers to his epic battle with Goliath. We'll put it on screen. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Goliath was over nine feet tall. But he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Goliath, over nine feet, heavily armored, a seasoned killer. All of the Israelite soldiers terrified of him. No one was about to take up Goliath's challenge to a one-on-one battle. And David, inspired by his concern for God's honor, and without fear, without wearing any armor, David, the teenage shepherd, took on Goliath with a sling and some stones. And God gave David the victory. If you are a follower of Jesus, Psalm 37 promises that God will give you the victory. Either in the way you are asking for it, or in a way that God knows will be even better. He's that powerful, he's that knowledgeable, he's that good. I know it just seems like in this season many of you are facing Goliaths. Something so big and ugly and difficult you can't possibly conquer it on your own. You're not smart enough. Some of you are facing cancer. Some of you have deep marriage problems. Some of you just challenges with aging. Some unemployment. Some infertility. Some loneliness. Some loved ones who don't love Jesus and you're very concerned for them. Whatever your Goliath is today, would you ask God for His help and put aside the fretting. Stop being angry. Just be still and trust and watch Him give you the victory. And keep asking for His help. One of the reasons we have difficulties that are beyond us is so that we will spend more time praying. God loves to talk with you. And He loves to intervene. He loves to come to your aid. He hates the pain and brokenness 
of this fallen world even more than we do. It makes him weak. And he loves to build your faith by answering your prayers. Hopefully, if you've been following him for a while, you have a whole backlog of all these times that he answered your prayers. On that wreath back there and the wreath around the corner, every ribbon represents an answer to prayer. People pray at this church and God answers prayers. But sometimes, instead of giving you what you ask for, he gives you what you would ask for if you knew what he knew. One of my favorite promises about prayer is in John 16, the night before Jesus died. And Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You see, every single day I fail to fulfill the conditions of Psalm 37. Every single day you fail to fulfill the conditions of Psalm 37. But Jesus fulfilled them all for you. So go boldly into God's presence. Ask Him for what will make your joy full. And He will give you that, or He'll give you something better. My favorite verse in this psalm is, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. God created you to be able to experience pleasure. Whether it's chocolate, or wine, or sex inside marriage, or surfing or skiing, God made you to be able to experience pleasure. He also made you to be able to experience wonder. The wonder of a sunset or, a, or crashing waves or hiking in mountains or just holding a baby. And all of the things in this life with which you experience pleasure and wonder, they're just a warm-up for the extreme pleasure and wonder that you are going to experience when you see God face-to-face in heaven. To delight in God is to experience just a bit of that now. For the Holy Spirit to be inside of you, to, to be prof- for you to be profoundly grateful for all that God has done. To think of how beautiful and amazing and wise He is. The Apostle John tried to capture this excitement when he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. As we said last week, God Himself is the greatest treasure that exists. When we delight in the Lord, it changes us. It changes our desires. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you desires of your heart. So we desire Him. We desire to know Him better. We desire to love Him and honor Him even more than we desire to have our own comfort. Now, at the beginning of this message, we read how God told Ananias that Paul would suffer a lot, and I said we'd come back to that. Why did Paul suffer so much? Didn't these promises in Psalm 37 apply to him? Yes, they did. Listen to his explanation. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, obviously, Jesus' afflictions were not lacking anything when it comes to paying for your sins. He completely exhausted the punishment that they deserved. But God needed someone who was willing to take the news about who Jesus was 
and what he had done to the Gentile world. And it was going to work out best if that person would suffer a great deal. Nobody would go through what Paul... You remember the list? Nobody would go through what Paul did unless they were absolutely positive that Jesus was God who died and risen again. And he was absolutely positive. He'd seen Jesus. He'd talked to Jesus. He'd seen him do incredible miracles for years. And Paul suffered for the church. He suffered a lot, but as he suffered, churches were planted. Much of the New Testament was written. Paul himself was transformed, and he got to know Jesus better and better and said that surpassed everything else. Paul's experience of heaven will be much better than it would have been if he had just led a comfortable life. I can guarantee you that Paul is now in the presence of the Lord, and he, he would not give away any of his suffering because of what it made him and because of what it means he will experience in the next life. God gave Paul what Paul would have asked for if Paul had known what God knew. So whenever you suffer for the sake of Christ's bride, the church, you are in good company. It's a high privilege. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You realize that in the Garden of Gethsemane, even Jesus asked for God to do it differently than God ended up doing it. Said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. God did not give Jesus the one who did fulfill all the conditions of thirty-seven of, of Psalm thirty-seven. What Jesus asked for, He gave Him something better. And Jesus voluntarily took on our sins and suffered what they deserved. And for all eternity, now we will have a much better understanding of the profound depths of God's sacrificial love for us. Heaven will actually be better than it would have been if Adam had never chosen to sin because of what it revealed about God. Forever we will be impressed beyond measure by the Lamb who was slain. So delight in Him Delight in Him. He is phenomenal. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. If you will delight in Him, He will change your desires. And then He will give them to you. Abby, would you come and lead us? Heavenly Father, we do come before You as people who are so easily overwhelmed by our fears, by our doubts, by our disappointments. And so God, this morning, we put those at your feet. We thank you for your son who is is your shield all of those situations. God, we are so in awe of your goodness that we don't have to, we don't leave a precipice. Lord, we are your children. And so, God, this morning, we put at your feet uh, our fears, our fears of the unknown. We put at your feet our disappointments uh, in people, in our trust. God, we put at your feet our doubts when it seems like wave after wave of the world is God, we lay that before you. Goodness, we pray 
this part and all that really says that you have peace that we have assurance that you act on our behalf that your spirit cries out for us when we don't know the words to say God give me boldness give me grace give me goodness and the assurance that when you look at us see your son and the Lord there is such freedom in that and so I pray that for anyone here this morning that is hurting um, and say Lord direct their speaking God that you would release them of that as they turn their eyes from their circumstances to you and that the prayers of the saints would have fade away as we sit in your presence, as we tell us how much we are loved. God, we thank you for your goodness and your love in our lives. Thank you for speaking to each one of us and meeting right where we're at this morning. We pray that you would be glorified as we leave a spirit of joy in the face of challenge or in the face of disappointment. That we can have a joy and a peace that is only explainable by you. And that we would leave this place this morning filled with a light and an inexpressible joy that just turns people to you. And I pray that we would be a church on fire for you. Would you do the work in our hearts that needs to be done so that we can be more like you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, whose name we claim.